You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Don't forget, we've got a webinar this Wednesday, June 15th at 7 p.m. called Enhance This where I'm going to explain regional theater deals and how they work into developing new shows on their way to Broadway or off-Broadway and everywhere in between. This Wednesday, June 15th, check out theproducersperspective.com for more details, including how you can take it for free. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hi, everybody. Ken Davenport here. So I'm going to make this introduction super short so we can get to this titan of a guest we have today. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand as I welcome to the microphone the winner of the Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement, Mr. Paul Libin. Welcome, Paul. Oh, good afternoon, Ken. Uh, Mr. I'm going to quit right now. I'm way ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, you've got a lot more to do. Uh, Mr. Libin is the executive director of the Jamison Theaters. He has produced over 250 Broadway and off-Broadway shows in his over 50 years of service to our industry. In those 50 years, he's been an actor. He's been a director, stage manager, and much, much more. He was the president of the League of Off-Broadway Theaters and Producers. He was the chairman of the Broadway League. He is the president, a.k.a. the theater owner, of Circle in the Square Theater, uh, he has seen it all, and he has the stories to prove it. So, Paul, let's get to it. What was your very first job in the theater? My very first job in the theater, I was a gopher for Joe Melzina. I had um, just graduated Columbia School of Dramatic Arts. I'd come back and finished my last year on the GI Bill, 
in uh, 1950 and 51, when the semester ended. Um, I, forgive me, that's when I came to New York. It was 1956 when I came back and uh, finished up Columbia on the GI Bill. <clears throat> I started as an actor, had three seasons of summer stock, and then got drafted at the tail end of the Korean War. And while I was in the Army, I uh, started a theater group, which gave me an opportunity to direct and design and produce. And uh, <clears throat> the taste of that was so rich and uh, rewarding, I decided I had to be involved in production. So when I finished uh, my last year at Columbia, I had taken a lighting course with a gentleman named Eddie Cook, Edward Cook, who owned a company called Century Lighting, which was the uh, premier lighting rental company on Broadway in those days. And uh, <clears throat> I passed my test with an A+, and he said all the room was at the top. So I figured once I graduated, I would contact him and see if he could help me get the kind of work I wanted to get involved in. And I went down to his office, which was uh, in an old, well, it was probably a wasn't an old warehouse. It was a warehouse on 44th Street or 43rd Street between 10th and 11th, if I remember correctly. And I walked in and I told him that I was looking for work and he immediately offered me a job. And I kind of mustered up all my strength uh, to say that um, I didn't want to work in a lighting company. I wanted to be involved in production on Broadway. And he looked at me and I, can't, I was very polite in my apology for not taking his offer instantly. And he picked up the phone and called Joe Malzino, who was a good pal of his. Uh, he was the premier scenic designer of his day, having designed shows such as Streetcar Named Desire, Death of a Salesman, South Pacific, Mr. Roberts, The King and I. And he, he, he had it all locked up in terms of that work. And he had a <clears throat> magnificent studio at the famous Dakota Apartments on 72nd Street and Central Park West. And I rushed up there in the, on the subway and walked in and was taken by everything I could see, his sketches on the wall and paintings. And we started to chat. And he asked me a lot of questions about my life. And <clears throat> I uh, asked him a few questions about his life. And uh, we talked for about 45 minutes. And he said... Uh, and he clarified that I would have to do whatever had to be done around the office. Uh, to me, that meant the gopher. I would get coffee, I'd go get the mail, I'd take the garbage out, whatever I had to do, deliver a package, a script, pick one up. And uh, he said to me, when would you like to start? And I said, now. And he, so I started working for him. Right there, right from interview to work. It was like a very special kind of experience because I was so excited. Uh, having been inspired by seeing a production of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, wanting to be in the theater, wanting to be an actor. Uh, here was a man who designed his set that Elia uh, Kazan directed, and the magic of that set I subsequently learned was so important to the success of the play as I grew older in the business and understood... <clears throat> all the components and how they came together in a production. 
and I remember working for him for a few weeks, and my wife said to me, so what are you getting paid? And I said, you know, I haven't talked about that. <laughs> so the next morning when I walked in, I said, uh, Mr. Melzina, you know, we, I got so involved in starting to work here, uh, I, I want you to know I must be paid, and I want to know what my salary is going to be. And he said, $40 a week. I said, that was great. Being a young, ambitious kid, uh, I kept my eyes and ears open, and he was in the process of actually producing a musical starring Ethel Merman called Happy Hunting. And uh, I was eager to do whatever had to be done, you know, deliver things, pick up things, remove things, fix things, whatever whatever had to be done. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot of interaction with him about uh, you know, fulfilling whatever the task was. And I kept my ears and ears open, and I heard that one of these assistant stage managers was leaving the show, and I told him, enlarging on my past experience that I had been a stage manager in summer stock and all that, which was a bit of a fib, but nonetheless, I knew I could do it. <clears throat> and uh, I became an assistant stage manager at Ethel Merman. It was my first Broadway show. It was 1956. Uh, I joined Equity having not been successful in my Broadway auditions in the prior years before I went into the service. And uh, I started working there. And while I was working there, uh, there were some very talented and creative people involved working in his office at the time. There was Ming Cho Lee, who was an assistant to him, to Mr. Melzina. <clears throat> Pat Ziprod was an assistant to Irene Sheriff, who was going to be the costume designer on... Uh, um, the Ethel Merman musical Happy Hunting, and Ward Baker was a production assistant who helped in the casting and everything. And we started talking among ourselves and decided that we wanted to do an off-Broadway play. Uh, while we were doing, working for Mr. Melziner and, and Pat Ziprod working for Irene Sheriff, uh, we undertook to do it, and we raised some money, and we found a theater, and we did it, and it was a big success. It was a revival of Arthur Miller's The Crucible. It was the first revival of the play. You produced the first revival of The Crucible. Right, Off-Broadway, 1958. And uh, I never looked back after that. I was always involved in producing shows, general managing shows. Uh, and there was a whole host of shows I got involved in both producing, general managing. And in 1963, <clears throat> we built a theater to do the Crucible in because we wanted to do it in the round. And uh, years later, Ted Mann was looking for a play to do six characters in search of an author, the Pirandello play. And we had a meeting because he had a show playing at the Circle. And <clears throat> we had a second meeting and the third meeting I suggested, well, why don't we just do it together? We shook hands, and we did six characters, and that was a partnership that lasted for 50 years at Circle. I became his partner, and he became my partner, and we worked together all those years with not a piece of paper between us. We just just did it, show after show, years after years. And I did some other shows outside of that at the same time, and then concentrated totally on Circle and Square, and we built the new theater on 50th. Well, we had someone built it for us. And uh, 
it was a big success when it started. It was not for profit. We did used to do four shows a year, and it worked out quite beautifully. That first show, that revival of The Crucible, what made you think that you could produce it? What gave you the courage to do something like that? You were how old? I I was, uh, well, I I was uh, 20, I think 26, 27. No, we actually, I was 28 by the time we, no, I was 27 by the time we did it. At 58, I would be 27. What prompted me about the play was I was very, always tuned into what was going around in the world and current events. When the original play was done uh, on Broadway, uh, I was tuned into the play. Actually, I was a student at Columbia and I watched the play from backstage. Somehow we got an invitation, I got an invitation, I don't know how, I can't recall the circumstances, but I remember standing backstage of the Martin Beck Theater listening to this play and just being enthralled by it, because when the whole thing uh, with the Roy Cohn and the Red Scare and everything in America, I was actually in Fort Dix, New Jersey, when he came to get his friend out of the Army, when the McCarthy hearings, U.S. Army McCarthy hearings were taking place. So I was tuned into that politically, and coming out of a socialist family, I was always aware of everything going on. So I just thought that it was an important play about America at the time. And of course, when we decided to do it, I reached out <laughs> I reached out to Kay Brown, who was then the agent for Arthur Miller at uh, an agency in those days called MCA, <coughs> Music Corporation of America. And uh, I told her what we were doing the play and she said, well, we have to talk a little bit more about it. Where are you going to do it? So we were hunting around for a space to rent. And we decided we wanted to do it in the round. And in those days, the only place available to do it in the round was would have been Circle in the Square, but Circle in the Square was being produced, shows were being produced by Ted Mann. So we decided we'd try to find our own theater. And I found uh, an empty ballroom in a hotel on 32nd Street in Broadway called the Hotel Martinique. And I went and talked to the owner, and I told him what we wanted to do. I tried to describe how we wanted to use the space, because it was about 60 by 60 and perfect space for a small 200 seat theater. And I said, the stage would be in the middle, and he said to me, he said, he said to me, uh, you mean like a nightclub? And I said, no, 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 it's not a nightclub, it's a theater. And he said, well, we can talk. And so I immediately got on the phone and called Kay Brown. I said, we found the theater. And she said, well, Mr. Miller would have to see the theater. And I said, of course. Uh, it happened that at that particular moment in life, he was married to Marilyn Monroe. And uh, I made an appointment to come see the theater. I was never a devout religious person, but I kept praying. Maybe if he came with Marilyn Monroe and the guy owning the hotel would see Marilyn Monroe, he wouldn't question anything about anything. And uh, that day came and he arrived with Marilyn Monroe to look at the space. And it was pretty overwhelming because I was talking to Arthur Miller when the owner of the hotel walked in and he saw me and he came right to me and 
His wife was off to the side talking to one of my colleagues, uh, and he didn't see her. And then I introduced him to Arthur Miller. I don't know if he knew Arthur Miller at the time, but he, you know, he was very reasonably polite. But he was a gruff Brooklyn guy. You know, when he shook his when you shook his hand, you wanted to make sure you had all five fingers on the retreat when you took your hand back. And uh, and I said, I'd like you to meet his wife, Miss Marilyn Monroe. And this guy just turned into like, he could hardly speak. He could hardly shake his hand. And uh, I was very grateful that he happened to come, when, well, I called him to come down, but that all that happened in one kind of circuitous event. And uh, so, and then we parted and I got back in the subway. And of course I told him you could call me at my office, which was not my office, it was Joe Monsignor's office. But being a young, ambitious hustler, I used every uh, resource I could to impress whatever I had to do to get things done. And by the time I got back to 72nd Street and Central Park West through the subway system, uh, Mr. Foreman had called me and wanted to know when we were going to sit down and make the deal. And that's when it all started. We built this theater. Uh, I was very, I'm a very hands-on guy. I still am. And uh, we put it together and I remember we we had uh, uh, I bought the theater seats were uh, collapsible canvas back seats that I bought. There was a gentleman at the time who had a music tent in Lambertville, New Jersey, and I bought the seats for a dollar a piece because we didn't know how long we'd run. So we spent two hundred dollars for the seats because <laughs> they were all from his summer theater. Event and the show opened. It was a big success. Uh, it was directed by Word Baker. Uh, it had uh, Barbara Barry played uh, uh, Goody Proctor. Uh, an actor named Michael Higgins played John Proctor. Uh, it was a challenge because as we were moving closer to get to opening, I mustered the courage up to call and speak to Arthur and telling him that. Uh, you know, I want him to be there, but I don't want him to be there on opening night because I think he came with his wife on opening night and, we, and the audience would have a rough time watching the show because she was such a stellar attraction in those days. Uh, so I said, no, we understand. We'll come by some other night and kind of slip in at the last moment and take our seats. So, <clears throat> so it was a big hullabaloo that night, uh, on opening night. There were a lot of people... There was a cr big crowd expecting to see Marilyn Monroe, and she didn't come up, and I was trying to quiet them down. I got in a scuffle with some young people who wanted to see her, and the police came, and they broke it up, and later someone said to me, Oh, Paul, you have a cut. Your jacket is all ripped in the back. And I took my jacket on and realized I, actually were, I was actually cut, and I had a my, my shirt was small blood stain on my shirt, realized someone had gotten a little rambunctious. And, and I'll, never, I'll never forget, the I, uh, press agent was an old-timer, and there was a reporter there from the New York Post who uh, wanted to interview me, and I just didn't, I wasn't cooperative. And uh, he, Saul Jacobson was his name. He came over to me and he said, Paul, he puts his arm around me, they're going to write a story, whether you cooperate or not. So you might as well just cooperate. And they're asking you questions. Answer the questions as best you can. 
And so they start talking to me, and then they ask me where I lived and all that. I'm not going to tell them where I lived. So I made up an address that I lived on Park Avenue. See, listeners, I promised you he had the stories that he does. Marilyn Monroe, he gets cut on opening night, and he's lying about where he lives. A good producer, for sure. Uh, so one of the, over the past 50, 60 years of your career, you've been very active in labor negotiations. Right. And you've seen a lot of changes, I'm sure. We're involved with them right now, both of us. Right. What's the biggest change you've seen in how the negotiations with the union from the early days of organization to now? Well, it's uh, everything has gotten through the years uh, as these contracts have gotten developed, they've, they've become more codified, very specifically about all kinds of different tasks and making certain people get paid for certain tasks. Uh, I recall the earlier days, Things were more general, a little. They weren't as carefully defined in terms of task. Uh, and I suppose through the years, uh, assignment of tasks related to ex cost and expense uh, is what developed to make the contracts much more complex in terms of their jurisdiction and the work that gets done. And I think that that all came as a result of uh, certainly. Well, I, I would say, I mean, my early career was always off-Broadway, but I had already, uh, not short, uh, shortly after I started uh, my partnership with Ted Mann in the 60s, I was involved in Broadway and off-Broadway. Uh, off-Broadway uh, from 1950s, uh, in the 50s, mid-50s, or uh, through... For 30 years off-Broadway, I was also involved in Broadway at the same time. And I think the codification of assignment and expense and uh, the duties that people have in the variety of contracts, not just stagehands, but everything, directors, scenic designers, uh, wardrobe people, as the business has gotten more complex and more technologically uh, uh, evolving in terms of accomplishing the magic of the theater, uh, there's been a particular attention to how people get paid. And that compartmentalization of expense uh, has pushed the cost up dramatically from what it was, aside from the fact that, you know, obviously what people were paid in the 1950s is a lot different than they're paid now, but all reinforced by assignment. Same thing with musicians, you know. There were more musicians working on Broadway, getting less money. Now, with the doubling of instruments and uh, technology, re reproduction and sound and whatever uh, enhancements have come, people have gotten paid more. And I think that's, for me, that's the most dramatic change in that application of that circumstance. And do you think that will just continue? Will we continue to compartmentalize more? It seems to me, it seems to me there has to be a line somewhere where we almost have to start over. It's just got, the expenses have gotten so complex and so costly and aside from being complex that it seems to me that the price of tickets just can't keep going up, 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 and up. I mean, if we can, if we have to only rely on one percent of the people who have the money to come to the theater, the theater will die, 
and and the economics of admission into the theater is a very important consideration. Although I think I think I don't know the numbers, but it seems like for the theaters that we have remaining, I mean, years ago there were more theaters, but now you know the number runs about uh, between forty and fifty theaters in the Broadway world. Uh, they seem to be full, and people keep coming, and the prices go from very little to very high. You know, it's that, that uh, landscape of pricing is very complex. And then I know many people complain about it all the time, but at the same time, every night there are seats available at very low prices for people to come see the theater uh, if they're attracted to something they want to see. And I think the taste of theater goers has changed dramatically. What way? Well, I think I think there's a lure. Uh, uh, there's a lure for uh, a more a, a form of entertainment, uh, as contrasts to enlightenment of experience and dramatic experience. Years ago, there were so many plays that were being done on Broadway. There, there are much fewer plays done every year on Broadway. Simply because I think uh, technology through the television and through other methods of electronic viewing of content, we now see things uh, more easily than we did years ago. Uh, the format of them and the sophistication of the creative aspects of uh, serious plays or subject matters that are of interest to, to viewers is available in so many different forms that that has uh, satisfied an appetite for people. Uh, the ability to watch on television now, if you're intrigued by a particular uh, show or a series, uh, you can watch the whole thing. You know, you can just pick out on it and sit there for a weekend and just watch all 20, 20 episodes. Uh, or you can watch them when you have time to watch them as opposed to having to be someplace. And I, and I think that, that there's a refuge that the theater has become for people, uh, certainly through the last economic uh, downturn that we had uh, in the U.S. economy. Uh, I remember talking to people. I remember once having a luncheon with some bankers who were always looking for your business, uh, where they said, well, We've heard that your business has done very well while we, our business has collapsed. And I said, it has. And they said, can you explain it? And I said, if I could explain it, I'd be a businessman. Although I always felt that people, during that period, people came to the theater to get away from it because the news was so uh, overwhelming. I mean, that's all you heard about. It. Collapse, this business collapsing, that business collapsing, the market collapsing. Don't have money to do this. You can't send the kids to college. The mortgages have collapsed. Your home is being taken away from you. And this was a place to sit in a room with some other people and laugh and be entertained, which was a refuge from the crises of the day uh, or that year. Actually, it was a couple of years. It wasn't just one year. Uh, but there, there's something about the experience that an audience has when they come and see something that is enlightening if the subject matter is profound or if it's entertaining that just provides this unique appetite for people have to get away from the box 
when I refer to the box, I'm talking about television uh, or the movie theater and see something live. There's something magical about live when it's working that's overwhelming. You're totally overwhelmed. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to see Nathan Lane in Chicago for, uh, for Iceman Comet. And it was a Saturday night in Chicago at the Goodman Theater. And uh, it sold out, standing room only. And I thought, well, knowing the play real well, they're going to be, they're going to be some people to check out. You know, they're just not going to stay the whole time. They were just spellbound. They could not leave. I don't know if they wanted to leave, but they did not leave. You know, that they were just spellbound by the experience of, of uh, Nathan and Brian Van Hayden do, and the other group of actors doing this masterful piece of writing. Uh, so there is a magic to it that's inexplicable for some reason when it works. Is there anything that you see today that's happened on Broadway, something that's changed, that if you think back, you would think, that'll never happen. This will never happen. And then it has. Anything that has surprised you about the changes that Broadway has undergone over the last 50 years? Well, I think the one most important thing that's happened on Broadway over the last 50 years is when people come to attend the production, the old days of the curtain coming down and two intermissions, now that total experience of immersing themselves in this magical world that we call the theater is that things have to keep moving all the time. They, have, they can't stop. You can't take the curtain down and have a minute and a half scenic change. A minute and a half is a disaster. You know, you can have a, you can have a break uh, between the one act and the second act. You run into trouble when you have two breaks an hour in between each. It's clear that it's harder for people to sit for three hours than it's easier for them to sit for two hours. Certain dramatic material that's presented in 90 minutes or 120 minutes seems to be more effective and because people have learned to absorb things at a higher speed than they did years ago. Uh, years ago, everything was done with two intermissions. And it started late at night, 8.30, 8 o'clock. I mean, those 8.30 was the traditional curtain time on Broadway in the old days. And then it moved to 8. Now it's 7, you know. So there's too many things people have to do in their lives now. Either to work harder or to spend more time with their family or more time away from their family, whatever the case may be. But they, will, they can enjoy something in two hours only because the speed of, of information is absorbed. Audiences have learned to, to watch something and figure out the roadmap of how it's going to happen. And of course, every once in a while, when you give them a twist and turn, they're pretty overwhelmed by it. Uh, most, most people are intrigued by the magic of a, a, a dramatic uh, uh, development. Mm. And then what they watch, whether it's in an entertainment or a serious play. What's the, besides yourself, who's the greatest producer you've seen or the greatest piece of producing you've seen if it was on a specific show? Some, something that you've sat back and be like, look at that guy. That's, that's some producing right there. 
Well, it's funny. Uh, uh, as you know, uh, uh, last year uh, I made a booking uh, for a fun home at the Circle and Square. And of course, shortly thereafter, Hamilton opened and it opened uh, off Broadway to great acclaim. And I thought, oh, well, I thought I picked the winner. Maybe I didn't pick a winner. Uh, and certainly they were competing based on the fact that one was a big, bigger scale musical and the other one was more family, uh, different storyline, a conflict in a family, the human condition, a more intimate story. I thought, well, uh, my secret wish was that Hamilton wouldn't open in the season that I didn't play. <laughs> And of course, there was a lot of talk about they would move up to Broadway and they'd open on Broadway. And I'd be, every night I would do my Nirvana and say, you know, Novena, forgive me, and then beg that they wouldn't open. And of course, they didn't open. And Fun Home won the Tony Award for the Best Musical, which was a stretch to begin with and a remarkable achievement, actually, with all the competition that was available. Uh, and then, uh, my wife and I went to see the opening, Florence and I went to see the opening of Hamilton. And at the first number I thought was just spectacular. <laughs> the second number was spectacular. I mean, I just was having such a good time. Uh, and the third number, I was just all caught up in it. And uh, she leaned, my wife leaned over, Florence leaned over and grabbed my forearm. She said, calm down, it's not your show. <laughs> so it was, you know, kind of a wonderful, it was a, it's a magical piece of uh, producing and theater. And the other thing that's so strongly about it, it's very simple. I mean, the content is complex, but the whole undertaking of how it was conceived and presented is so um, magical. It's, you know, the, it's the essence of what the theater is about. And, uh, you know, every, every once in a life, you know, there, to me, there's there's a couple of things in my life that are, you know, just unique experiences that uh, the first one, of course, was I went to see Death of a Salesman as a young man. Not, I had no interest in the theater. I mean, I hadn't even, hadn't even gone to the theater much as a young man. I was already in college, and I went to see Death of a Salesman with Thomas Mitchell playing Willie Loman, and I was absolutely overwhelmed. And while my friend, I was on a double date with another couple, he went to get his father's borrowed car, and I was standing in front of the Erlanger Theater in Chicago, and Thomas Mitchell walked out with his collar up and the brim of his hat pulled down. And I looked at him and I said, Oh my God, Woolly Loman is alive. I was just I was just blown away by that. And I said, That's my destiny. That's something I have to I have to do that. And I remember coming home to my parents and told my telling my dad that I found my destiny. My dad said, so what's your destiny? And I told him I have to be an actor. And he said, well, he says, you know, two months ago, you, with a couple of friends, you bought a sailboat that you're fixing up. You want to sail it down the Chicago, you know, the river and into the, into the Caribbean and, uh, and then sell the boat and then come back to go to school. And before that, you want to go to the University of Chicago to study international studies. He said, decide what you're going to do and just go do it. I said, that's what I got to do. Ironically, the first play, the first part I played was in Arthur Miller's All My Sons. So I have a long history of Arthur Miller. So, you know, when I see, uh, when I saw that production and had the great 
privilege and honor to do the first revival in New York of Death of a Salesman with George Scott 25 years after the original Broadway opening. That was a thrilling moment in my life, or I should say evening. 50 years later, I did it again with Brian Dennehy, and that was a great production, as George's was. And Brian Dennehy gave me a shout-out when he got his Tony Award, the rich moment in my life when you get a thank you from a great actor. Uh, Angels in America was one of the things I was most proud about being involved in producing. Uh, I would I would take just one of those, by the way, just yeah. one. Yeah, I always say I mean, you get them once in your lifetime. I've had a couple of great ones in my lifetime. Well, speaking of your lifetime, I mean, you've what do you credit your success at being able to survive and thrive in this business, which will admittedly beat you up every single day? But you've not just had one big success; you've had many. You're still here. You're still doing it. And obviously, as I'm sure everyone can hear, you you still love it. How do, how do you do that? I do love it. There's there's something that I just I just thrive on being able to be a part of uh, assisting in the realization of a project. It's to me is just thrilling. And and the other thing that makes it work for me is you're always working with new people and different people, different ideas different ways of articulating them. Uh, I've worked with the biggest the biggest names in this business uh, and it, it, it's been one of the great rich rewards seeing them you know do what they do and how they do it and, you know I had some confrontations with people but uh, they're motivated to do the best and I'm motivated to do the best and ultimately that's it and every once in a while you run against them personality that's difficult, but you use your smarts, you work you work that out, figure a way out to handle that because it's uh, you know, some sometimes creative people are, are complex, uh, insecure people and they you know <laughs> they swing back. And I, you, have, you have to learn how to modulate that. Sometimes you have to swing back and so that's life. <laughs> you swing back. You take you know, take a punch and Get one back if you have to, but and I've done that in my life too. Uh, but it's just—I I remember. I re, it's so interesting. I rem, one of my ambitions was to have a Broadway theater, and I think six years after I was had the circle in the square. I remember walking uh, west on Fifty Street and looking at the market and said, "You know, I, I, I wanted this, and I have, I've had it for six years, and I didn't fully realize I've had it." for six years working on things having confrontations with labor negotiations and settling them because uh, we're all in it together and it's a, it's a wonderful collaboration of so many talented people it's just fun it's just I, I, I'm, I'll be 86 this year and I just feel like a kid I, I don't know how to explain it it's just, it's just a joy what do you think the business will look like in another 25, another 50 years? Well, one, one of the things I always have embraced, uh, well, I shouldn't say always because you have to have a certain perspective when you look back at the theater. Uh, I didn't have that perspective when I started as a young man, but I have it now. 
occasionally people will come to me and they'll say to me, you know, Paul, Broadway is not like it used to be. And I, and I always have to say to them, don't you understand that Broadway's never been how it used to be? That's why it's still here. That's why it's exciting. That's why it changes. Everything in life changes. It can't, it can't be like it is. It just can't. It's always changing because the whole idea is creative force. You get directors, you get writers, you get actors who come up with new ideas of how to do plays. So I remember I was interviewed uh, when Seymour Hoffman uh, did uh, Death of a Salesman. A, a reporter called me uh, and said, uh, you know, I've, I've read about it, but I know that you've been you're a great fan of Death of a Salesman. So which is your favorite? I said, well, let me tell you. And I started off with Thomas Mitchell. And after Thomas Mitchell, I said, I saw Lee J. Cobb do it on TV. I didn't see, I was not in New York then. And then I saw uh, Dustin Hoffman do it. And then George Scott do it. And uh, they were great, you know. And then I went, Brian Benny do it. And then uh, Mr. Hoffman do it. And uh, so she, the reporter says to me, so which is where you which is, which one would you think is the greatest? I said, I just told you. So they were all great. <laughs> That's what's so magical about the theater. That that you can take a great piece of writing and just lay it out in front and put it in the hands of a great actor, and it's an exciting, thrilling moment. And I remember Arthur Miller told me that uh, when I got to spend a little time with him, not a lot, but a little time with him when we did the Crucible. And I remember him sharing with me the story that when he visited China, uh, one of the literary important uh, accomplished writers of uh, Chinese literature at the time was talking to Arthur, and he said, "And he said to Arthur, how did you understand the Chinese family so well that you could write a play like that with salesman? I'd love to know what he said to that. Yeah. Anything in your career you would do differently if you were doing it all over again? Any regrets? Anything that you say, I wish I would have just done this? Well, there's nothing, you know, I'm not going to list. It's just an exciting experience to go see a play that you're not involved in that just catches you up and takes you on the journey. That's, to me, a lot of fun. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to your office here, Jujamson, knocks on the door and says, Paul, I want to thank you for your incredible contributions to the theater for the last 50, 60 years. And I want to thank you by granting you one wish, just one. What's the one thing that makes you so angry about Broadway, that gets you frustrated, keeps you up at night, would get you pounding. I've heard you yell a couple times myself at me, which is not very pleasant, by the way. Um, <laughs> what would make you so mad that gets you so angry that you would ask this genie to wish away? Well, I think it's a crime that every night on Broadway, there are thousands of seats that are not occupied by people seeing something. I think that if we could solve that problem, that would be just great. I mean, obviously the hits 
are always at capacity. But there's so many other wonderful experiences. Um, and I, I think for some reason that too many people in our culture, culture is the right word, there's too many people near the theater, physically near the theater, who would be so rewarded by the experience. Even if the production that they witness was not the most perfect or accomplished ones compared to the ones that are the ones that shine brighter than others, that that experience of being in a room with other people and laughing or crying, depending on what they were seeing, uh, that would be a beautiful wish to be fulfilled. Well, I am no genie, but I don't have any wishes to give you, but I certainly want to thank you for sitting down with us today and for your incredible contribution to the business. You know, we forget that Broadway is still a young industry and the people like you who helped build it are still here today, still doing it. And uh, we appreciate that so very much. So thank you for that. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe until the next episode. I'm Ken Davenport. This has been the Producers Perspective Podcast. Don't forget the webinar this Wednesday, June 15th at 7 p.m., all about enhancement deals for regional theaters. And you can take it free when you join the Producers Perspective Pro. Check it out on the blog. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.